Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Meg Terrell. And I'm Damian Garde. Adam Feuerstein is out today. It's Thursday, June 22nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. If you thought pharmacy benefits managers were an opaque part of the drug pricing system, Stat's Bob Herman has got a story for you. He joins us to explain. It's also been a busy week in the world of vaccine data and regulation. So, of course, we asked Stat's Helen Branswell to share her thoughts. All that after a word from our sponsor. What does operational inefficiency look like in clinical trials? For sponsors, it means lagging patient recruitment and no way to see enrollment barriers. At research sites, it looks like manual paperwork jamming the enrollment process. One study team's mission is to accelerate the development of new and life-saving therapies by bringing clinical workflows online. This enables sites, sponsors, and stakeholders to work together on a common cloud-based platform, Study Team. The result? Efficient workflows, increased enrollment, visibility into enrollment barriers, and one clear path to faster therapeutic development. Learn more at onestudyteam.com slash stat. That's O-N-E studyteam.com slash stat. Drug pricing in the United States is complicated, but one seemingly simple aspect is that employers big and small pay consulting firms to deal with pharmacy benefits managers, tasking them with getting the best deal possible on the prescription drugs for their employees. But what those employers might not realize is that some of the same consulting firms are getting paid even more money by the PBMs they're supposed to scrutinize than by companies they contracted to look out for. That messy conflict of interest is the subject of a year-long investigation by Stats Bob Herman, who joins us now to explain what on earth is happening here. Bob, welcome back to the podcast. Damon and Meg, thanks for having me. Good to be back with you. So maybe just start by laying out the players for us. This is always one of the hardest things to do in just explaining how drug pricing works. But so in this situation, there are employers, consultants, and PBMs. What are they supposed to be doing to lower patients' prescription drug costs? And then what did you find they're actually doing? You're right, Meg. This, it's always hard to even just get into the explanation and because like that part alone could put people to sleep. But it is very important once you get there. <laughs> and, and you're right. So employers across the country, they hire consulting firms and they're basically saying, hey, we have to we want to provide health and drug benefits to our workers. Help us find good deals. Help us find the right vendors for this. And so the consulting firms, as they get paid by the employers, they go out to the market and say, okay, um, we're going to run some bids and, and these are the best options for you. That's in theory what happens. And, you know, the consultant theoretically is looking out for the employer. Um, and in this case, they, they market to different PBMs and say, okay, what's the best deal you can get for this employer? However, and this, you know, really wasn't known, um, the PBMs actually pay the consultants behind the scenes. They, they call them fees. They call them credits. There's a whole bunch of different names for them. But they're paying the consultants, which is like a textbook definition of a conflict of interest. Um, if, if the consultant is getting money from the PBM, how could you impartially evaluate all the different options? You're probably going to favor the one who's paying you. Um, and so in, in return... The, the consultants almost says like, okay, they direct the employer to the PBM that's paying them. It might not be the best deal for that employer. And it's probably why, you know, employers are stuck with, you know, prescription drug deals that may not be the best or cost them a lot of money. So you mentioned that this was not known. And, and I mentioned at the outset, this was a year long process on your part. 
what was that process for uncovering these relationships and why are they so closely guarded in the first place? It was really hard because um, consulting firms obviously are not going to be advertising that they get these fees from PBMs. <laughs> it's, it's really just it, it involved a lot of talking with people who are in the know. That means attorneys who help employers with their PBM contracts or who audit them. That means talking with other PBMs, smaller PBMs who feel like they're getting pushed out of the marketplace because either they don't want to pay these fees to consultants because it's gross, or if, you know, ethics aside, they would pay the consultants, they don't have enough money to do it. Um, and it also involves talking with, you know, consultants who, and I think this should be pointed out as well, there are good consultants out there who don't take fees, who actually work on behalf of the employer. And a lot of them felt like, you know, they, they, they saw this going on and, and they, they were kind of fed up with it. Um, so it just took a lot of time to to talk with these, a lot of these people, and we also uncovered some uh, you know court filings and, and documents that kind of confirmed that you know at least in, you know in some instances brokers are are getting paid bonuses to steer um, employers towards certain PBMs. So yeah, it just it, it took a lot of you know convincing people to talk about it. Hmm. After you did that, then presumably you went to the PBMs and the consultant firms to ask them you know, to explain what was going on. What did they have to say about it all? Yeah. And I, you know, I think we're in a day and age of journalism where the default answer from a lot of corporations is here's a statement. You know, it's, it seems very hard to, to get them to talk on the record or for any kind of, uh, at length interview. And, you know, we, we highlighted four consulting firms, Aon, Willis Towers, Watson, Mercer, and Gallagher, and then the big three PBMs, which are Express Scripts, CVS Caremark, and OptumRx. Um, two of the consulting firms wouldn't even answer written questions. And one of the PBMs, CVS, wouldn't answer questions either. They just said, we're not participating. And then the ones that did respond basically said, um, you know, they, they responded that we're transparent with our fees uh, to the employers. Um, and you know, if, you know, if in the instance we do pay this, the employers that tell us to pay, or if we pay, there's just like a, a lot of caveat language that, you know, made it seem like there was more going on and they really wouldn't answer follow-up questions. But, you know, at least in their statements, they said they were transparent. Uh, I think a lot of employers might, uh, disagree with that. Well, speaking of which, like what has been the reaction to your story since it published earlier this week? It, it's funny. I was at a, um, a forum for employers uh, talking about PBMs this week. And a lot of them had had read the article and I think were, you know, pretty heated up about it. In at least one instance, one benefits manager or, uh, you know, one HR person for a, a pretty large company sent the article to their consultant, basically said, you know, answer for yourself, like what's going on. Employers know they have to work with consultants. They know they have to work with the, you know, a lot of PBMs, but I think it, they're starting to realize that, you know, the PBMs have their large market share because consultants help keep it. They help make sure that the employers stick with them. And I think there might be, I don't know if there's going to be a reckoning or not, but I think a lot of employers are at least considering maybe we should consider thinking about going elsewhere. And, and employers have a lot in line here. They have a legal obligation under this law called ERISA where they have to find out if their vendors are, you know, getting paid reasonable quote unquote fees. And if they don't do that, they're violating the law. So there's, there's also a very, you know, there, there's a strict legal obligation for them to be doing something about this too. 
So, you know, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the intricacies of drug pricing and supply chains. But as you point out in your story, this stuff has real world effects on real people. So what are some of the consequences of these financial relationships? It's honestly the most important question, because like when you talk about these conflicts of interest behind the scenes among all these different players that nobody really knows about, um, you know, ultimately it affects like the workers who get their health and drug benefits through their through their job. And if you go to the pharmacy counter, if you you know get an IV infusion and you have this high coinsurance rate or this high copay, um, it's probably because you know your drug benefits you know are kind of diluted or you know not really in your favor, and you know, it's just part of the offering from your employer. And the employer is offering that because that's part of what the consultant and the PBM kind of wrapped up for them. And so ultimately, if you're a worker, this is drug coverage that is yours. And, you know, if you're paying a lot out of a pocket, that's why. And even if you're not, this is ultimately the workers are paying these fees, you know, among these companies, because it's, it's viewed as compensation. It's not like the employer is just, um, you know, willingly giving you, uh, you know, money, they're, they're paying you compensation to do a job and all of that includes benefits. So ultimately, workers are paying for this in some in some fashion. So, Bob, your story is filled with on-the-record quotes of people saying things like, isn't this a conflict? Absolutely. And it's beyond unethical, which, well, which, first of all, kudos to you. That's always great to see. But it suggests that, you know, at least within this insular world, there's an understanding that this system is, if not broken, then deeply problematic. How are some of the people you talk to in that world who are aware of this, how are they working to counteract it? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And you know, I think that's probably what spurred a lot of people to to at least talk because they're just they're sick of kind of these conflicts and they feel like they're you know their backs are up against the wall and it's hard to compete. And so I think a lot of uh, consulting firms are, are and PBMs are saying, "Hey, we're not going to accept any fees. We're not going to pay any fees. Like we are work. We will sign conflict of interest disclosure statements saying we are working solely for you, the employer." And but oftentimes it's still not enough. The employer, um, you know, they might get mesmerized by certain deals, certain rebates that PBMs offer. And, you know, the small guys, even though they're kind of saying we're going to be working for you, um, it's just it's just not enough. So, I, you know, I think there's a concerted effort by a lot of brokers out there and consultants to say we are going to work for you. And, the P- and PBMs say we will also work for you. We will be transparent fully. Um but if if they can't offer you know the same types of rebates or certain type of you know financial sweeteners, they're kind of you know they're kind of running into a wall. So your story also coincides with an escalating effort in Washington to pass legislation that would more strictly regulate how PBMs do business. So would any of the proposed bills right now address the consulting issues you reported on? Not really. Um, the, the the legislation that's being discussed in Washington is mostly about like, you know, how should we think about rebates and how transparent they should be and and certain things called spread pricing. Um, it doesn't really get at, you know, um, a lot of <laughs> these fees that go on behind the scenes. There, there's so many financial tra- transactions between PBMs and consultants and wholesalers and everything else. And the legislation doesn't really get it specifically the things that we're talking about here. And, um, you know, there are laws on the books for employers to do something about it, but at least in Congress, there's nothing really out there right now to either enhance ERISA to make it more incumbent on employers to do something or just to outlaw these types of uh, fees in general. There's, there's nothing really uh, specific on that. 
So reading through your story, I think people, you know, a bell might go off in, in their mind that if, if employers are in many cases kind of aware of the fact that they might be getting a raw deal, why do they, why don't they fire these consultants or, or why do they even hire them in the first place if it seems like, you know, they're kind of, well, they're being party to a series of transactions in which they are not the beneficiary? So sometimes, and some attorneys said this, that employers might not even be fully aware of the uh, the conflicts or the fees that are changing hands between consultants and PBMs. They just, either they don't know, they're not fully aware, or, you know, you know they just, they don't fully understand it. And so that's part of it. But um, the other part of it is, you know, you're right. Like, why why don't you just fire your consultant if you, if you think that they're doing a bad job or fire your PBM if you think that they're being unsavory? And the problem is, you know, big employers, their main job is not to be a health insurance company, which is what they are being in this instance. They are providing insurance to their employees and they're running all these medical benefits. It's not what they do. If you're Boeing, you make airplanes. If you're Ford, you make cars. Being an insurer is not what you do. So that you rely on consultants. You have this trust that you are, that they are going to help you out and run this thing that you have to provide, that you feel like you have to provide. And then you'll just worry about doing your regular business. So they don't really move to fire their consultants because they need them. And there's this distrust factor that they are still working on behalf of them, even though they might not be. So, and another part of it is, you know, employers don't like to make big changes to medical benefits, medical and drug benefits. They, they don't want to piss off their employees. Um, if, you know, things get shifted around, if they have a new vendor, if pharmacies get out of network, there's a lot of disruption, and the last thing you know employers really want to do is is make their employees angry. So there's a lot of things stacked up that really make it hard for them to fire a consultant, even or or a PBM, even if they're working against uh, you know their financial interests. Seems like an area ripe for disruption. It is. I mean, <laughs> I I don't know if there's like a a startup raising like a Series A right now, but you never know. Or a Mark Cuban. I was going to say, how does the blockchain or AI solve this? Or both. I don't know. Maybe there's... <laughs> Just ask ChatGPT which <laughs> pharmacy benefits manager program you should use. You're right, you're right, right though, Meg. Um, Mark Cuban is getting at this a little bit, I suppose. Um, and some employers are trying to work with him and plug in his like pharmacy network into their own. But it's, you know, it's an imperfect solution. Uh, and there's still some holes because it doesn't solve everything. It's not like you can get every drug through Mark Cuban. Um, but yeah, the, there's, it's, I think it's very clear that a lot of people working in this industry are, are sick of the setup. And now it's to the point where they're like, it's, it's just gotten too, too out of whack for, the, for it to continue. Well, Bob, thank you as always for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. As we speak, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, is in the middle of a three-day meeting covering vaccines for COVID, RSV, polio, and other diseases. It follows a meeting last week of the FDA's vaccine advisors on how to update COVID vaccines for this fall. To help us sort through it all, we've turned to Helen Branswell, Stat's senior writer covering infectious diseases and global health. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. It's nice to be here. So let's start 
why not chronologically, with last week, uh, the agency's group, the FDA, that is, group of outside advisors, ended up voting unanimously that COVID vaccines should be updated to cover just one currently circulating strain of the virus, dropping the original strain for the first time. So this was based on evidence suggesting that could provide better protection than continuing to include the old strain. Is that right? Can you walk us through it? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's effectively it. I mean, the 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 concern has been that by boosting uh, the Wuhan strain, the original strain of the virus, that you're effectively um, driving up protection against something that we're not going to see anymore. It's not no longer circulating and maybe um, getting a lesser response to the the component of the vaccine that targets what's actually circulating. So the, the thinking was you know, take it out. One of the things the committee said was, you know, the evidence at this point suggests that, you know, the original Wuhan strain, the Delta, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, all the other strains that um, circulated before Omicron, they're effectively gone. They've been driven out of humanity. And so at this point, the notion is to target something that is much closer to what we're actually you know, going to be confronted with. I also heard Peter Marks get, I don't know, you would know, I think, him better or or how he reacts to things better than I would maybe, but he sounded like he was almost annoyed at the committee at the end of the meeting because the committee, at least some of the committee members, seem to be worried about us falling into a pattern for COVID vaccines that emulates the pattern for flu vaccines. What did you make of that back and forth and sort of where we've landed with COVID? Well, this is just a guess on my part, but I think Dr. Marx was sick. He was at home. <laughs> you will have noticed the, the uh, polar bear uh, having tea painting oh, yeah. that we saw so frequently during the pandemic. He was he was addressing the committee from that room, and he had you know a much. Uh, huskier sounding voice than he normally does. And I suspect he was unwell. Um, and you're right, he did de- definitely sound kind of testy. Th- this issue has come up, you know, a number of times at the Verpac. Uh, there are members of the committee who are really concerned that FDA is sort of marching things down a path to annual um, COVID shots, uh, shots that are updated annually, very much on the model of flu. And they keep saying, you know, this is not flu. There are some similarities, but this is not flu. And, you know, we even at the meeting last week, even some of the, the people on the committee were questioning how many people, you know, should think about being vaccinated on a regular basis and whether we're going to need to vaccinate on a regular basis going forward. Those questions haven't yet been answered, but, um, you know, it, it, it is going to be interesting to see in the next few years whether the flu model for updating COVID vaccines is actually the one that will be followed. In some ways, you know, it would be so much easier if if this was a shot that you needed every year and you can get it at the same time as your flu shot, that makes things very easy. If it's something that needs to be updated or if it's something that people need to get less frequently, that becomes a much trickier situation, which we might talk about when we talk about RSV. Well, so just 
ending on that meeting beyond the dramaturgy of Peter Mark's Zoom window, was there anything that surprised you over the course of the meeting? Um, not surprised, I don't think. I, you know, I think Novavax, the vaccine, the little vaccine that keeps trying but hasn't really, you know, met its 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 potential. Um, they that was had the backup very... book to the little engine that could, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they had a very lucky break. Uh, you know, the committee was asked, the committee decided that the, the strain in the vaccine should be something that was an XBB.1. something. And there are a bunch of different um, XBBs. And, um, you know, Dr. Marks was sort of asking them, did they want to put pick a particular XBB and I think they they landed on XBB.1.5 which is probably already on the way out but the antigenic targets look very much like the other one so it doesn't really matter if it's not exactly the one that's circulating now and that was a very lucky break for Novavax because their their vaccine takes a lot longer to make than um the mRNA vaccines. And so they have been making um, an XBB.1.5 vaccine at risk, effectively betting that that's the way that the Verpac was going to go. Had Verpac decided to go with another strain, they would have been left with product that they might have had difficulty selling, as it is that that vaccine has not sold well in this market at all. But at the very least, they live to fight another round. (laughs) Uh, So fast forwarding to the present, now the CDC's vaccine advisors are meeting to discuss a whole host of different diseases. But as you alluded to earlier, RSV, which they discussed on Wednesday, has generated the most fireworks so far. Maybe tell us what happened. Well, so this is really interesting. You know, the world has been waiting for decades for RSV vaccines. There were um, there was one designed for children in the 1960s that turned out to be unsafe. Kids who got it actually had more severe disease, and that was discovered in a clinical trial, and that shut down development of RSV vaccines for a very long time. Uh, More recently, people have figured out through studying the crystal structure of the virus, how to design an effective and safe uh, RSV vaccine. And, you know, a bunch of companies are racing to market with vaccines for seniors, vaccines for um, pregnant people to protect their infants after birth. Uh, There's a monoclonal that's coming. Um, So there's a lot of different stuff on the horizon with RSV. But the first uh, products to come out are going to be two vaccines for seniors, one made by GSK and one made by Pfizer. They were both approved last month by the FDA. And yesterday, ACIP, the CDC's advisory committee, um, you know, was had a vote to effectively decide whether or not to recommend people get this vaccine um, or these vaccines. What was interesting about this was at the start of the day, it looked like the committee was going to recommend that all people 65 and older be urged to get the vaccine and that people aged 60 to 64 be 
allowed to get the vaccine if they and their doctors decided it was worthwhile. Uh, certainly, the companies would have preferred all, all people 60 and older be urged to get the vaccine. The vaccine is licensed. The, both vaccines are licensed for people 60 and older. But as you know, the, the day went on, it became clear that the committee had a lot of concerns about the data they had before them, the pricing of these products. And in the end, in kind of a surprise move, what they decided was that people 65 and older and people 60 to 64 should be allowed to get the vaccine if they wanted, want to and if their doctors believe it would be good for them. But there was no, they didn't get the strong recommendation that they should get it. And that will have a depressing effect on uptake for sure. These hearings are, are fascinating because, you know, we're, or at least I personally am more used to FDA hearings, which focus on safety and efficacy. But these advisors to the CDC get to take into account pricing, um, which which is sort of a third rail for the FDA. And what's interesting on this one is that the pricing is at least somewhat theoretical. I, I don't know. I'm just from reading the coverage. It, it felt like the negotiations seemed to be kind of like taking place in, in the minds of some of the parties as this was playing out. What were the reservations that committee members had, both in terms of the data that they had at their disposal, but also the, the pricing for these medicines? Right. So apparently companies do not announce what their prices are going to be until after vaccines are approved and recommended. Uh, but they do provide um, the HCIP's working group sort of an estimate of what they're thinking about. Uh, and up until very recently, GSK was thinking about a price of about $148 per dose, and um, Pfizer was thinking about uh, $180, I believe, initially. And uh, then both companies learned that there's at least two years of protection from one shot. It, this is not going to be something that needs to be given annually. And that changed their calculus. Um, you know, yesterday there was a, uh, as part of their discussions, there was a, you know, a presentation about the cost benefits of these vaccines. Uh, and it was revealed that five, um, GSK is now thinking about $270 for the one shot. And, um, Pfizer is talking, use the term, the figure 200 as a placeholder. And several members of the committee got really annoyed because they wanted to know how much these vaccines are going to cost because they, you know, part of their remit is to sort of figure out if these are going to be cost effective. And if they don't know how much the companies plan to charge for them, it's really hard for them to calculate that. Uh, one of the members of the committee, Kip Talbot from Vanderbilt, got really testy and she sort of said, you know, it'd be really great if you could come back by 4.30 when we plan to vote and give us an exact number. And at about 4.30, both companies came back and neither gave an exact number, both gave a range. And the GSK range was actually even worse than what had been presented earlier. They said they're thinking about somewhere between $200 and $295 for their shot, which they call the narrowed range. It seemed like an unusual uh, use of the word narrowed. Um, and Pfizer uh, mentioned a range of $200 to $270 for the shot. I mean, 
you know, to put this in a little context, that's multiples of what it costs to get vaccinated against flu. And flu is a more dangerous pathogen. <laughs> and and flu is something that people know about. RSV is not really something that a lot of adults know about as a risk for themselves. So, you know, it, it the arguments that the, that GSK made was that, you know, we now see that there's two years of protection from one shot and we feel that, you know, that added value needs to be reflected in the cost of the shot. Um, you know, how much that influenced the final decision, unclear, but, um, uh, but neither of those companies could have been happy with the outcome of yesterday's vote. And perhaps the committee members weren't necessarily especially happy either. I mean, you have the situation where these these vaccines have these sort of, for, I don't know if you'd call them premium prices or, or, or what. We'll see where they end up. But at the same time, you also noted the committee members were not satisfied with the amount of data they had from the companies, right? And particularly in the populations that are most affected um, in the elderly uh, by RSV and, and severe disease from it. Maybe just tell us about that and the idea that, you know, I think I've heard the committee members argue before, we've been in COVID, but we're not in COVID here for RSV. We're not in an RSV pandemic or an emergency state, so we don't have to go at the COVID pace anymore. Was there kind of a push-pull around that? And, and maybe just tell us about how much data there was. Yeah, so well, there if, were. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that that that's exactly right. And um, you know, the committee obviously didn't feel like there was a massive rush, but of course the companies are looking around and realizing that the that there's a lot of competition right now to get out into the marketplace with RSV. You know, J&J has already announced that it was shelving its its um, uh, RSV uh, efforts uh, potentially because of the fact that it wasn't as far along as, as other uh, manufacturers. And, you know, there's not such a huge incentive to bring a third or fourth vaccine to market. Um Yes, the committee was really concerned about the data that were presented to them because, you know, the people who are at highest risk from RSV, well, young infants are at really highest risk, but then older adults. And the trials had very few people 80 and older in them. Now, you know, they did not enroll people who live in congregate living settings like nursing homes, also at extremely high risk. And they didn't allow people with who are immunocompromised into the trials. They also are at very high risk. So effectively, the committee was asked to was being asked to assume that data that were generated in healthier, younger seniors was going to predict how well these vaccines would work in people who are older, frailer, uh, and have more coexisting medical conditions. And they were really unhappy about that. Another question that I think has been discussed, but we don't have a ton of data yet on, is we're thinking about the upcoming fall for, you know, RSV vaccines becoming available, perhaps updated COVID vaccines, flu vaccines. 
you know, the population of seniors may be faced with the question of, do I get all three of these shots and when should I get them? Do we have data to show it is safe to get these together? They produce the same immune response when they're given together or if they should be spaced out? Like, do we even have that information? We don't have all of that information. There is some information that uh, that can help to inform decisions, but it's not you know, there are studies that need to be done. And it's a really important question. Um, it, it is known from lots of other vaccines that sometimes when you give vaccines at the same time, concomitantly, uh, that one will impede the uptake of the other. So uh, and RSV is is one of those kinds of pathogens. Apparently, it's kind of dominant. So if you give it with other things, you probably will get a depressed uh, response to one of the other vaccines. Um, you know, both GSK and Pfizer have done some studies of of concomitant um, administration of RSV and flu vaccines. Um, the Pfizer study was using regular flu vaccine, which is not what people 65 and older get. They get high-dose or adjuvanted vaccines. Uh, GSK had some data for a high-dose vaccine and, and RSV. What they showed was that it was not <laughs> – this is a complicated term, but they, they showed – that the response was non-inferior, meaning statistically it wasn't it wasn't statistically worse. But a number of people on the committee noted that while it wasn't statistically worse, it seemed to be trending in that direction. Hmm. And they had real concerns about co-administration of these two vaccines because you know, flu is an important pathogen in older adults, and they mm. didn't want, you know, to be robbing Peter to pay Paul effectively, that, you know, you could protect them against one thing and make them more vulnerable to another. So that is, and and the whole notion of all three of them at the same time, that those, if if anyone's doing those studies, the results haven't been released yet. So, you know, it is an open question and there's reason to think that um, it might not be the best approach. Was it Ashish Jha who said God gave us two arms, one for a COVID vaccine and one for a flu vaccine? We don't have three he arms. He did. So. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> no, that was, yes, he did. And, and yeah, no, we don't. Um, yeah. And it's going to be, you know, one of the things that's going to be interesting about this, this, this notion that, that this vac- the RSV vaccines last at least two years creates a challenge. You know, people don't remember when they were last vaccinated. Do either of you know when you last had a tetanus shot? You know, (laughs) yeah, you're supposed to have one every 10 years, but where are you in that? Um, Who knows? And, and, you know, some of the manufacturers like Moderna is currently working on a COVID flu and RSV vaccine. If, if RSV has to be given on an irregular schedule, you know, that, that comes off the table and um and you know it's just going to be a lot more challenging i think going forward as because the sort of space for adult vaccines a seasonal vaccine in particular is becoming really kind of crowded We're not, it's not bad that we now have these options but using them properly is going to be a challenge <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Helen, thank you as always for joining us. Always a pleasure to be here. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Bonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you, in fact, have a third arm for all of those vaccines. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.